Today's reading comes from 2 Samuel 7, 1 to 17. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in you, your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel, and I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. You may be seated. <clears throat> Thank you. It is, uh, it is so good to be with you. Uh, I, I know I'm supposed to say that, but I really mean that. I, it is so good to be with you. I am a huge fan of this ministry. I'm a huge fan of uh, Brett and Allison and, and, and know a lot of the team as well. Know some of you and fired up for what's going on here and, and, the, and the things you're doing in terms of multiplication and going to East Van and going to Dunbar maybe. Yes, really, that's awesome. Dunbar is my hood. I grew up on the main streets of Dunbar. And uh, I live there to this day, and, um, and so you coming into Dunbar is such a, such a great thing. Um, it's a scary place. Be very careful. The people there can be very scary. Don't look them in the eyes when you go by them. Just kind of stare down, and uh, they'll treat you okay. Um, we have a lot of work to do. If you haven't turned already to 2 Samuel, I invite you to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7, the text that was just read. You are beginning today an Advent season where... Over the next four Sundays, including today, you'll be reflecting on Jesus as king, prophet, and priest. And the great privilege that I have today is, is kicking things off by looking at Jesus as king 1.0. 
and, and I say 1.0 because I will be focusing on, focusing on Jesus in his first advent, meaning his first coming up until, up until his first coming. And then in a couple of weeks, you'll be looking at Jesus and his second advent, meaning the second coming of Jesus. And therefore, I, I won't be hitting certain things about the kingship of Jesus. Um, I'll be ignoring them because you'll be hitting that part of the kingship of Jesus like I said, in a few weeks. So I, again, I invite you to turn to 2 Samuel 7 if you haven't already. As you, as you do, as you find that text, let me lay out what I'll call the lattice that this sermon is going to be built upon. Let me give you some things on the front end if you like taking notes, and then I'll double back on it. What we're going to do is we're going to begin briefly looking at the prophecy coming concerning the coming of, of a king, the king, the king of kings. We'll begin there. That will take us to our text. So that's 2 Samuel chapter 7. We'll then skip ahead to the promise fulfilled. That will drop us in on what I will call the first Christmas. We will then go from there and we will consider the problem. There is a problem that we all share. I'll talk more about that, but I'll give you a little bit of a tease. We all have a problem, share a problem concerning the kingship of Jesus. So we're all in the same place when it comes to that. I'll unpack that further as we get there. And then finally, if I've done my job well and, and God is gracious, we'll respond with humble praise. And so if you're taking notes, if you've had your ears open for the last 30 seconds, we'll go from prophecy to promise to problem to praise. All right. If you want alliteration for Christmas this year, Merry Christmas. All right. I'm your Santa. So let's go at it. Like first, the prophecy concerning the coming king, which takes us to our text. It was read already, but let me set the stage. As we drop in on 2 Samuel 7 and find David, he's in a good place. This is a good season for David. And, and that stands out because not all seasons have been good for David, if you know David's story. But this season for David is a great season. He sits and reigns over a unified Israel his enemies have been subdued. Saul is dead. There is peace in the land. And on top of that, the ark of God has recently been placed in the city of Jerusalem, right? The city of Zion. This is home base for David. So this is good times. David is doing well. In fact, just to double down on the goodness of David at this stage in his life, he is living in some sweet new days. A, a new house had been built. For David, and he is living in it. Just double back, hang a left, go to chapter 5, same, same book, 2 Samuel, and just notice in verse 11 that we read there, and Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David, and cedar trees, also carpenters, and masons, who built David a house. Sounds nice. I mean, it sounds really nice. Don't you like houses like this? The kind of, you know what I mean? When you walk by houses that sort of incorporate the kind of big wood beams and stonework. You know what I mean? Don't you like that look? Think Whistler. Okay, let's go to Whistler in our minds. Think Whistler. Like one of those big mountain mansions at Whistler. You know the ones that you walk by? Big palatial palaces. 15,000 square feet. Stone and wood. Big beams. Infinity pool in the back. Right, hot tub, right, those places, marble countertops inside, Jack and Jill closets, his and her safes, three-car garage, like that place. And you walk by them in Whistler and you go, who lives here? 
I'll tell you who lives there. David. That's his place. But there's an issue that comes with that. And the issue is the Ark of God that I mentioned earlier, the most important piece of furniture in Israel. The, 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 the Ark of God which represented the very glory and presence of God. The Ark of God that was so synonymous with God himself that when we read through Second Samuel 7, we'll go back and forth between talking about the Ark of God having a house and God having a house. That's how connected they are. That ark resides in a tent. God lives in a tent. And David is crashing in this wood and stone luxury. That's an issue. At least it was for David. And so David starts thinking in his mind, I need to build God a house. I need to get this ark of God into a house. And so he calls the prophet Nathan. This is the first time we read about Nathan in the story of God. And he says to Nathan, essentially, I need to build God a house. Nathan says, sounds good, go for it. But the issue is God has different thoughts in mind. And so God intervenes in the middle of the night, goes to Nathan in a vision and says, Nathan, I want you to go back to David with the following message. Here's the message. I'll paraphrase it for you. David, who do you think you are? Have I, have I asked you to build me a house? Have I ever asked anyone from the time I led my people out of Egypt until today, have I asked any of the rulers of Israel to build me a house? Have I ever complained about living in a tent? That's, that's verses 1 to 7. Let's pick things up in verses 8 and 9, two of the most precious, beautiful verses in the Bible. Let me prove it to you. Verses 8 and 9. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus, a lot of thuses, (laughs) I don't know why, thus, says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep that you should be prince over my people Israel, and I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. I love this. Just just hear what what God is saying. David... I took you from tending sheep in the back 40 to ruling over the nation of Israel. And I cut off your enemies. David, your enemies became my enemies. And I'm going to make your name great too. This statement of God is only the second time it has come up in the entire Bible to this point. The other time, all the way back to Genesis 12, when God says the same thing to Abraham. David, I'm going to make your name great too. And David, I've been with you. I've been with you every step of the way. Here's how I will sum up these two verses in the context of 2 Samuel 7. David, you are my house. I don't, hmm, I don't dwell in tents. 
I dwell with you. Even if you built me a palatial palace, I don't dwell there either. I dwell with you. And, and David, I've been with you every step of the way. So precious. Can you imagine getting a message like this? Like you're at home, knock on your door, prophet. God gave me a word for you. This is it. Can you imagine if this word of God to David was God's word to you? Christ City? It is. That's what makes these two verses so precious. God says to us, I dwell with you. In fact, I'm in you. And I've given you a new name. And I've taken you from that old thing to a brand new thing. And I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Do you see why these two verses are the most, two of the most beautiful verses in the Bible? Hear God's word to you. We could just stop here and call it a day. This is so tasty and good and rich and has been chewing on this this week. These two verses. But we have more work to do. Drop down to verse 11. Pick things up halfway through. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. That's interesting. He has a house. What is God talking about? When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever and I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline, discipline him with the rod of man, with the stripes of the sons of men. Drop down to verse 16. I'll finish with what the last phrase is, is there for us. Your throne shall be established forever. So to sum this up, hear what God is saying to David. David, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house instead, a dynasty. I'm going to build you an eternal kingdom through your line. This is referred to as the Davidic covenant. I cannot overstate how important this promise was to God's people. I can't overstate it. In fact, when you read about the first Christmas in the in the gospel accounts of it, gospel writers will emphasize how expectant they were of someone coming. They're waiting. They're waiting based on this. Not only this, based on other promises with one like Moses coming or one like a son of man coming, but they're expectant. And they are longing for it, hopefully longing. They want to see it, but tied to it, just look at verses 12 to 14 again specifically, God promises there that an offspring of David was coming. And he would be the one who'd build God a house. Who is this? Solomon. David's son to come, he would be the one to build God a temple, right? The first temple built by Solomon, Solomon's temple. You can read about that in 1 Kings chapter 6. But when I say that, you need to do me a favor. You need to chamber these three verses. Just save them to the desktop of your minds, because we're going to come back, we're going to click on them, because there's something more in these three verses that we need to see. But that's good enough for now. That's the prophecy 
concerning the coming king. Let's fast forward about a thousand years and, and see with that fast forwarding the promise fulfilled. This drops us in on our first Christmas. A couple of texts connected to that first Christmas that are well known. The first is in Luke 1 where we read. It's a longer text, but we'll get through it because it contains so much goodness we need to go in it. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. That's interesting. That's not a throwaway point. If you were longing for one to come and you read this, Luke wrote this letter, you opened it up and read this, that would be a point of interest to you. It would stand out. And the virgin's name was Mary, and he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And, and note this, and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob, that's Israel, forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. As you read that, where's your mind going? Second Samuel 7. Your, your mind should go to Second Samuel 7. Because what we see here is the fulfillment of that promise given then, a thousand years earlier, in another traditional Christmas text, Matthew writes this. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, who's Herod the king? He's the king of Israel. He's the king of the Jews. Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born? King of the Jews? That's an interesting question, especially if you're Herod. For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. I guess. Like that's the hallmark reading of it. He was ticked, man. Ticked. Angry. Murderous. And all Jerusalem with him. More on Herod in a bit. We'll come back to that this individual. And so, based on these texts, and I could take you to more, and you could take me to more as well, who is the fulfiller of the promise given to David? Jesus. That's the easiest question you will get all Christmas. Jesus is the fulfiller of the promise given to David. He's the one through the line of David who would come and establish an eternal kingdom that had no end. And it makes sense, especially when you fast forward into the ministry, just go 30 years later, ministry life of Jesus starts, and he sure isn't shy in declaring that he was ushering in a new kingdom. Was he? How does he start his ministry? Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Disciples come to him one day and go, Jesus, would you teach us to pray? He says, when you pray, pray, our Father, your kingdom come on earth. When Jesus calls one of his disciples named Nathaniel, Nathaniel cries out, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. When, when answering his opponents, and Jesus had many opponents, but opponents specifically on the, 
on the practice of casting out demons, Jesus says to them in Luke eleven twenty, if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And how can we, con- how can we forget the many times Jesus begins parables with the kingdom of heaven is like? Additionally, in recording the events surrounding Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem and on what we call Palm Sunday, Matthew writes that those events fulfilled what Zechariah prophesied, writing, Say to the daughter of Zion, say to the daughter of Jerusalem, Behold, your king is coming to you. And only days later from that Palm Sunday event, Pilate, looks Jesus right in the eye and asks him point blank, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus responds, you have said so. In other words, it is as you say. Move ahead just a few hours from that moment, that conversation, Jesus hangs on a cross with a placard above his head that says, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. But not only Meaning Jesus is not only the king of the Jews. He's not only the king of Israel. But as Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapters 1 and 6, Jesus is the king of the ages. Jesus is the king of kings. Jesus is the Lord of of lords. And as beautiful as that is, that catapults us ahead to the problem. What's the problem? What's the problem? We don't like kings. We don't like kings. If, if, Je- if Jesus is not only the king of Israel, but the king of kings, what does that make us? His subjects. If he was just the king of Israel, big deal. Right? For most of us, unless you're from Israel, welcome. But for most of us, high majority of us, because look, we know today that nations, there are countries that are ruled by kings today. right? You know, Jordan, for example. Jordan, for example, King Abdullah II is the king of Jordan. Now, if King Abdullah came to my house, knocked on my door and came in and he said, my name is King Abdullah, I'm the king of Jordan, I would go, great, great means very little to me because why? I'm not Jordanian. I don't have a passport from Jordan. I'm from Canada. But if King Abdullah knocked on the door of my house, walked in and said, I'm the king of the world, right? When old Leonardo DiCaprio on us, if I'm the king of the world, man. That's a deep pull. Thank you for tuning into that. Thank you. Appreciate that. I'm the king of the world. Then I've got an issue, right? Because he rules. I live in his kingdom part of his kingdom. He, he rules supreme. And again, we don't like that. And if we must have a king, we'd prefer one that fits our image of a king, but what if he doesn't? What if he doesn't fit our image of a king? What then? And, really important question, if he doesn't fit our image of a king, does that make him any less a king? 
That, that was certainly the dilemma at the time of Christ in first century Israel. They expected an earthly king. That, that was the image they had in mind. An earthly king who was going to set up an, an earthly kingdom and sit on an earthly throne. They had, a, had in mind a king who would overthrow the, overthrow the hated Romans, remove them from that hated tyranny, very despised tyranny. They, in a very real sense, had a better version of King David in mind. David killed his ten thousands. Maybe this new guy will kill his hundreds of thousands. And they all be Roman. Be great. That's the image they have. And, and in some ways it's very understandable, but it's also a problem because Jesus wasn't coming to fulfill that image of kingship. This great juxtaposition about what they had in mind versus who Jesus was shows up dramatically in the immediate aftermath of the feeding of the 5,000. You remember that event? The greatest earthly messianic sign of all signs that Jesus ever displayed. The feeding of the 5,000. To, to the people then. You say, what about the resurrection? They didn't have that in mind. To the people then, feeding of the 5,000 in the wilderness, which is a few things, they're thinking new exodus. Here's our Messiah. Here's our King. In the immediate aftermath of that, we read in John 6, 15, perceiving then that they were about to take, about to come, excuse me, and take him by force to make him king. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. You see, in the wake of this event, they saw Jesus as someone who could not only free them, but serve them them, take away all worry. And if he didn't want to do it, we'll force him. We'll put him into position. And so Jesus withdrew. The irony is, what is the irony about all of this? Jesus did come to free them. And he, he did come to serve them. And he did come to feed them too, just not in the ways they had in mind. Jesus had a different enemy in mind. Jesus had a different freedom in mind. Jesus had a different bread in mind. Jesus had a different kingdom in mind. He was like a king. He was a king like no other. Kings rule with power. Jesus came in weakness. Kings live in palaces. Jesus had nowhere to lay his head. Kings are raised in Jerusalem. Jesus was raised in Nazareth. Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Kings ride white stallions. Jesus rode in on a, on a donkey. Kings are hailed. Jesus was mocked. Kings are adorned. Jesus was stripped. Kings wear crowns of gold. Jesus wore a crown of thorns. Kings sit on thrones. Jesus, our king, he hung on a cross. He, he, was, he was that type of king. And that type of king was a problem to many at the time. It's a problem still today. It, it was such a problem for the people then 
It only took five days, just five short days, to see their cries of Hosanna be replaced with shouts of crucify him. Why? He doesn't fit our image. Kill him. Which begs the very obvious question, doesn't it? What type of king do you have in mind? A a type of king who exists to serve you? Or the one who offers so much more? Whose rule do you prefer? His or yours? This is the question that Christmas brings with it. I, I, the following illustration is mine. The, the idea was birthed out of some stuff I was reading this week, so I can't take full credit for it, but it's still a great illustration. Here it is. We've all seen Christmas performances, pageants, things like that, right? Maybe a Sunday school program or 50 years ago when they still did them in schools. You know the ones I'm talking about, the, you know, the shepherd scenes and, you know, the manger scenes and all those kinds of things. Who would you be if you were in that? Like, if you had to choose a character, right, in that first Christmas scene, who would you choose? Like, Joseph, kind of strong, silent type. You know what I mean? Just kind of hang on the background, beard. Like, that's some of, like 90% of the men in here, right, just hang on the back, beard. How about Mary? Maybe you want to be Mary, right? Favored by God. That's me. I'm Mary. Maybe a shepherd, good blue-collar guy. Honest day's work, honest day's wage, hang out in the country, hang out with sheep. Right? Maybe you want to be maybe you want to be a shepherd. Maybe maybe you want to be a sheep itself. Right? Put on the cute little sheep costume. You know, they're so cute, right, when we see that. Anybody want to be King Herod? The King Herod. You know King Herod. We talked about him before. King Herod, King of King of Israel, the one who led the infanticide of two year and under baby boys in Bethlehem. Like King Herod. Not many volunteers. Which is very ironic. Because of all the people connected with the first Christmas, he's the one that represents us best of all. Let let me sum up the meaning of Christmas for you. If you're wondering, what is Christmas all about? This is what Christmas is all about. A king drops in on our kingdoms and says, you or me. That's what Christmas is all about. My rule or yours? Your kingdom or mine? Are you ready to worship me? Or am I going to be dead to you? Herod or the wise men? Which path will you take? You or Jesus? What king will you choose? That's Christmas. That's the question it brings. That's the choice it offers. But before you decide and before we move on, let me remind you of the kind of king Jesus is. As I said before, Jesus is a king like no other king before or since. A king who rules supremely with justice and righteousness, fused with grace and compassion 
love and mercy. A king who not only rules over, but came down and was lifted up and was buried under and was raised thereafter for us. Can I encourage you to choose Jesus? Not to offend you, we make lousy kings. We don't rule well. Choose choose Jesus. Choose that type of king. Which takes us back full circle to 2 Samuel 7. Remember before I said chamber. Just lock away verses 12 to 14. Well, let's go back to them. Let me remind you of what they say. Those verses record that David would not be the one to build God a house, but one of his offspring would. Have you ever wondered why? Like, why, why wouldn't David be the one to build God? I mean, it's David. Greatest king in Israel's history. Greatest king in Israel's history. Why wouldn't it be David? The man after God's own heart. That David, why not? Two reasons why. The first shows up in 1 Chronicles 22. We read this. But the word of the Lord came to David saying, You have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name because you have shed so much blood before me on the earth. So there's the first reason. David, you're not to build me a house because it's to be, it's to be built by a prince of peace, not a man of war. David, my house is to be a house of prayer for all nations. And therefore, it can't be built by one who warred against them. That's reason number one. But there's a second reason. And we'll start wrapping up with this. David couldn't build God a house for the type of house that God had in mind could only be built by a certain type of king. And hear me on this. A type of king David wasn't, but nor was Solomon. The type of house that God had in mind was a house built by a king who could say, Destroy this house, and in three days I'll raise it up. In other words, Christ City, the house that God had in mind had to be built by the one, the house that was built by Solomon pointed to, who would fulfill it. The ultimate house of God, the ultimate dwelling place of God is what? It's who? Jesus, God in flesh. God with meat, God who came, Jesus. That's who had to build the house. Nobody else could. But, but didn't I say earlier that the offspring to come was Solomon? Remember I said that? Who's this? Solomon. And he did. First Kings 6, like I said before, he built Israel's first temple. Isn't he the one? 
these verses refer to? Well, on the one hand, yes. But not in the fullest sense. In that sense, God had a different son in mind. Just notice one more time. I've taken you here already. Go to verse 14 again, please. So vital and precious and sweet. Verse 14 begins, I will be to him, this offspring, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Why is that important? Well, it's important because we see it again. This phrase comes up in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5, where the writer of Hebrews says, To which of the angels did God say, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son? The answer is God said that to no angel. This was something said only of his begotten son. And so as I close... Let's go back to these three verses. Click on them. Bring them up. Three verses. One more time, but this time, get rid of Solomon and bring in Jesus. Let's read them again. Verses 12 to 14. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. And he did, right? Two times. Two times. One lying in a manger, the second time coming out of the tomb. I'll raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be, here it is, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Behold, my son, of whom I'm well pleased. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men, sons of men. Huh. How, how can this be about Jesus? I mean, Jesus committed no iniquity. And you're right. He was crushed ours instead. And the rod of men meant for us, he took upon himself. And the stripes of the sons of men, he bore on his back. And it's by his stripes that we are healed. What a king. Amen? What a king. Do you, do you see why, you see why, after looking at the prophecy concerning the coming king, and looking, the prom, looking at the promise of it fulfilled, and, and considering the, the, the problem that kings bring for all of us, that in light of this, why we need to join the wise, man and re, wise men and respond in humble praise. So let's do that. Let's respond in humble praise, bringing everything we've got, the best we've got, gold, frankincense, and, and myrrh, gifts fit for a king, gifts fit for a king who would die. Let's bring everything and praise King Jesus. Let me pray.
And we do. Jesus, we praise you. Bless your name. Worship you. Rightly worship you. As the king of our lives, as the king of this world, as the king of the cosmos, the king of the ages, the king of kings, we worship you. The one who came and the one who is coming. We want to be like the wise men, doing all we can to come before Jesus, to worship Jesus. And forgive us for when we are more like Herod, just hanging on to our kingdom and our rule, resisting you. Forgive us and strengthen us so that our affections and our desire would be more for you and the things of this world would grow strangely dim. More of Jesus, less of me. More of Jesus, less of me. I pray. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.